turn, please, to Mark in chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, I want to read, uh, beginning with verse 35. Mark 10, 35 to 45. <clears throat> Upon finding that, uh, please pray with me. We pray that you would help us. We confess our need, we confess our weakness. We confess our sin before you and pray that now as we open your word that you would work through it by your power and grace uh, to change our minds, our hearts, that this word would sink uh, deep within us, that it would have that perfect work that you've intended and that that work would be, we pray, that it would bring grace to us and cause us to live in such a way as to bring you glory and to show you to be great. That's our heart's desire, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. <clears throat> then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. The hymn there is Jesus. They came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink? The cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am, I am baptized with. We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This really, in essence, is the key sentence in this gospel according to Mark. We've been building to it the very opening verse. Mark announces that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to say, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is about him. It's all about him. Jesus comes on the scene and says, Repent and believe the good news. He, in essence, the person of Jesus and what he does and what he brings is that very good news. And so, so here we have Jesus announcing that he is the Son of Man. It is the one who has been given power and authority. He is the Son of Man, and He comes to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He's the ransom payer. He is the ransom payment uh, in Himself. And so the Gospel is, is all about that, really. Now, it comes to us in, in, in the context of this particular situation with James and John and the other disciples. It's not a new situation. In fact, this kind of thing has been happening ever since Jesus has announced that he's going to go to the cross. Ever since Jesus announced that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer there, and that he would die and that he would rise again. Ever since then, the disciples have had this quirky little deal about them to see who is the greatest in the kingdom. It was just a chapter ago in chapter 9 in verse 33, where all of the disciples together were debating amongst themselves who was the greatest. And that was the first time that Jesus said to them, the greatest one among you is the least, last. The one who serves is the one who is the greatest. Well, now it appears that James and John 
have kind of circumvented the others and announced themselves, claimed themselves to be the greatest. And so they go to Jesus with this wonderful question. Jesus, do for us, please, whatever we ask. Now, every parent knows <laughs> that's just not something you're going to do. But they come to Jesus, you know, do whatever we ask. What do we ask? Well, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, when you come into your glory, could we be on your right and on your left? Now, the good part of that is they recognize that Jesus was the glorious one and that he would come into his kingdom, he would come into his glory, and that he should be at least in the center. But they really were thinking quite a lot about themselves because they wanted to be on the right and on the left. They wanted to serve with him better, I think, in their mind, to have authority, have power, and to be served. And so they come to Jesus, and Jesus, kindly, it seems to me, says to them, you, you don't really know what you're asking. And so he says to them, can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with, with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And, and when Jesus says that, you know those words are full of meaning. When he says, can you drink the cup? He says, can you take it all in? Can you imbibe everything that's, that's really coming up? And we know what Jesus meant by the cup. And in Gethsemane, in the garden, he asked his father, could this cup pass from me, this suffering, this sacrifice? Is it at all possible for it to, to pass from me? We know that it wasn't. We know that Jesus had to drink from that cup on the, on the Passover night, even prior to that time in Gethsemane. Jesus lifted the cup that was at the table, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. That cup is the very shedding of his blood. That cup was the very suffering on the cross. That cup was the very giving of his life. And so he says, can you, can you drink from that cup? In the context of your own lives, can you give your life? Can you suffer alone with me? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to, to undergo? And by baptism, he was using that word in a rather metaphorical sense. Can you be identified with me on the cross? Can you be identified with my suffering? Can you suffer along with me for the sake of the kingdom? Can you do that? And James and John astoundingly said, yes. You can get the sense they weren't quite up to speed. But then Jesus turns to them and says, you will. They didn't give into the request which they had, which to sit on his right and on his left. That was already prepared by his father. He wasn't saying who that would be or even if that would be. But, 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 but he did say, I'll give you that which you think you can handle, which is drinking from the cup and undergoing the baptism. I'll, I'll grant that to you. And of course, that did come to pass because Acts 12 says that James, the brother of John, came under the sword by Herod. He was killed. And we know that John, the apostle, was exiled on the Isle of Patmos because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they did experience, in some sense, suffering for the sake of the kingdom. But then the other ten get together, and of course, somehow, I don't know quite how, I'd be curious to know how they found out what James and John had asked. It could be that James and John... Sometimes I wonder if they were the brightest box, the crayons in the box. But they, I suspect they may have gone to the other ten and says, we get to drink from the cup. You know, you could just, don't you just get that sense? Um, but they went, and somehow all the others found out that James and John had this privilege, I suppose. And, and so they began to be upset about that, obviously. Jesus comes to all of them, and he gives them essentially the same teaching he's already given them. 
He's already told them these, these exact same things, but now he couches it a bit differently, and he provides for them the ultimate irrefutable foundation as to what he's saying and why he's saying it. Uh, he, the context here is he gives them a contrast between two different kingdoms, two different kinds of, of rule, the kingdom of the Gentiles who, who rule with this authority and the kingdom of God, what it means to rule in the context of the kingdom of God. Because when we talk about the, the word kingdom, and it, it is about rule. Kingdom has two parts to it, king and dumb, right? King means a king. And um, I know you're expecting more, but that's what it, the king part. The dumb part, of course, comes from the Latin dominus, which means dominion or domain. So it's the domain of a king. It's the rule of a king. It's the dominion of the king. And he says, now the Gentiles have their dominion, have their kingdom, and they rule with their authority, but they lord it over, meaning they rule so that they can be served. I don't know if you've ever fantasized about being a king or a queen, whichever the case may be, male or female, but, but being an authority, being the ruler. And um, generally in those fantasies, you have servants. And generally in those fantasies, those servants serve you. I mean, that's, that's the fun of being a king, I suppose. But Jesus said, that's not what it's like in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the ones who rule serve. And so he says to them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And then in verse 45, he says, for even. And that little word, even, is so significant. I mean, it's one thing to think about being a servant even among peers, even among equals. There's something to be said about one human being laying aside their honor for the moment, if you will, and sacrifice something for another person, another human being. But he's saying, even the Son of Man. And when he says the Son of Man, he's referring to the title of the Messiah given by the prophet Daniel. Because Daniel sees a vision of, of, of the Ancient of Days that is God, God the Father on the throne. And he sees this vision in Daniel chapter 7 of the Ancient of Days and coming to the Ancient of Days is one like a son of man. And to that one who is like a son of man, the Ancient of Days, God the Father gives dominion, rule, and authority over all peoples and all the nations. And now Jesus says, this is how the Son of Man comes. The one who has been given by God all authority, all rule, all dominion, all power, all authority over all the peoples of all the nations. Here's how he functions. Here's how he rules in the midst of the kingdom. Even the Son of Man, the great one, the greatest one of all, he's the one who comes not to be served, but to serve. It isn't just one equal among other equals, but it's the very eternal Son of God laying aside His honor, laying aside His glory, and suffering to serve the lesser. And not only the lesser by, by, by degree, but, but by the lesser, by the, by the inherent guts of the being. I mean, this is the Creator coming to serve the ones created. This is the pure one coming to serve the impure ones. This is the holy one coming to serve the unholy ones. You see, This is the deserving one coming to serve the undeserving ones. 
It's that kind of thing. So he says, so, so, so if this is, this is true of you, because even in my case, this is what it means. This is just the truth. This is how rule takes place in the kingdom. You come not to be served, but to serve. Thus, if that's true for the Son of Man, how much more is it true for us? Now, the question then is, how is it that the Son of Man, how is it that Jesus serves us? Well, he says, I've come not to serve, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. So he gives his life as a ransom. Everybody knows what a ransom is. Uh, Let's say there's a kidnapping. Along with the kidnapping is usually a ransom note. And that ransom note, not that I've ever written one or uh, even read one, but, but, but I suspect it goes something like this. We have your child. Um, and your child is with us and is unable to go free. And we will not release your child unless you pay this ransom payment, unless you pay this amount of money or do this particular thing for us, unless you pay, then your child will not be uh, released. Your child will be killed. It's a ransom note. It's a ransom note because in it, it has the requirement of a payment so that the one who's in captivity, so that the one who's in bondage, so that the one that's been captured can be then set free. And so everyone in the days of Jesus would know what a, random, uh, what a ransom is, and we would know what a ransom is. Jesus is saying, my very life is to pay a ransom payment for those who are in captivity that they might be set free. That's how he comes to serve. And of course, he's speaking of us. He's not the one captured. His father's not the one captured. We're the ones who are in bondage. We're the ones who are enslaved. Jesus said, if you sin... You're a slave to sin. So we're enslaved by sin. Ever since Adam sinned, the Bible teaches us that we're slaves to sin. It holds us in bondage in all kinds of ways. We're in bondage to the, to the penalty of sin. We, we can't be released from it because we're guilty. That's simply the truth of us. And so being guilty before God because of our sin, we're in bondage to the penalty of sin. We, we can't escape it. Thus, we're under, the Bible says, the wrath of God, under the curse of the law. The law of God is there, and it brings a curse upon us, the very wrath of God to us because we've disobeyed it and we've offended God. And the Bible also says that we live in the fear of death, and the reason that we live in the fear of death is because deep down, now some people are able to repress this better than others, the Bible says. We work at repressing it. But deep down, there's a fear of death. And the fear of death is that we know that after death comes judgment. You know, Billy Graham's great line, he stole it actually from the author of Hebrews. <laughs> but in every one of his crusades, he always says, it's been appointed Unto man wants to die, and then the judgment. That's the problem with death. The problem with death isn't simply the stopping of breathing. The problem of death is what comes next. The problem of death is the judgment. And so inherently human beings have the sense of that, however we may repress it. And thus we live, the Bible says, in the fear of death. The Bible also says we live enslaved to the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. We've, we've 
We live enslaved to the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. And what that means is simply this, that naturally speaking, as we're born into this world, what we inherit from those who went before us in the context of our own lives is simply an empty way of life, a futile way of life. Because the best that can come from it, apart from being redeemed, is that we live condemned by God. And we end up in hell. And so there's this empty way of life that we are enslaved to, no way out of. And so Jesus comes and says, I'm going to pay that ransom. And he does with his very blood, with his very life. He serves us that way. Let me read to you from the scripture just some verses. Don't look these up. You may want to write them down to refer to later. But Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. We have redemption, that is, this ransom has been paid to, to redeem us. And therefore we have the forgiveness of sins. How does Jesus serve us? He serves us by paying the ransom price so we can be set free from the penalty of sin. Our sins forgiven. Now, I know you've heard that before, but just think about it. Let's say that you've been kidnapped. And all of a sudden, they come and they cut your ropes and they let you out and you go from the little... I think about these things. This little terrible closet that you're in, no air, your mouth is duct taped over, and you're starting to really hate duct tape. It used to be your friend, now it's your enemy. And your hands have been tied with duct tape, and you've been duct taped. And they kind of unduct tape you, take you out of the closet, and there's this bigger room where all the kidnappers have been partying. And on the table is this humongous bag of money. And they say to you, you're free now to go. And you say, no, that's stupid. You say, yes, and you'd run out of that place because they like the money more than they like you. And so they got what they wanted, and you are now free. But, but when you think about it, that we've been redeemed, the ransom has been paid, which means that if you're a believer in Christ, no matter how guilty you may feel, you're not. You need to know that. You need to wear that. You need to receive that. Because that's how Jesus has come to serve us. By setting us free from the penalty of sin. To do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You see. And he goes on. Romans chapter 3 says, But now righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe there's no difference... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That is, he, he paid the ransom. The redemption has come. He's redeemed us. It's come through him. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That is to say, he paid the price. Sacrifice of atonement is translated in some older versions of the Bible, uh, better ones, uh, at this point with the word propitiation. The NIV translated it sacrifice of atonement because they said no one knows what propitiation means. Nobody knows what uh, sacrifice of atonement means either. So, I, so just teach yourself the big word, propitiation. 
The word propitiation means to propitiate, which means, I'm coming to it, which means to satisfy, to extinguish, to exhaust the wrath of God, which means there is no case against us in heaven for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's really true. Again, you may feel guilty, but if you're a believer in Christ, you're not. So enjoy the fact that the duct tape's been off and, and, and you're free to now leave that guilt because Christ has paid the ransom and he did it with the cost of his own blood. That's how he serves us. His serve, service to us was a suffering, sacrificial service because he left his glory. He set apart his honor. He became humiliated. He endured the pain of it. The worst pain than we could ever imagine because it was the pain of the sin of sinners for all eternity upon him. And he, 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 he endured the forsakenness of his father and the separation in that sense on our behalf. He endured all of that. And if you just pause for a minute, doesn't it cause you to love him? Doesn't it cause you to think upon him with great, with great affection? For it isn't thus that he found a million dollars from all of his friends and gathered it up and put it in a bag so you could be set free. It isn't just that he made an appeal on TVs that you could be set free from your captors. It's that he himself, in a way unimaginable to us, paid with his very life, his very blood. And doesn't it make us love him? The scriptures say Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And we know that this also frees us from the, from the fear of death. Hebrews writes, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Why? First Corinthians tells us this. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Whose victory? Christ's victory, not ours, but his. And we're in him, thus he serves us through his victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory, the scripture says. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The, sing, the sting of death is sin. That is the fear of the judgment that is to come. But he says, the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We needn't fear death because sin's been dealt with. The penalty's been dealt with. The judgment, when it comes, we will be said to be pardoned. We're released from the very power of sin because of this service of Christ. Because, you know that great hymn we sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, there's a line that says, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoners free. His blood has made the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. Now you've sung that a zillion times, but the next time you sing it, this is what you'll think of. He paid the ransom, and when he did, he not only canceled sin, freed me from the penalty, but he also broke the power of canceled sin. It isn't that we're just forgiven, thus no longer enslaved to the penalty of sin. It's also 
that we're empowered so that we're no longer enslaved to the dominating rule and power of sin. Prior to this, we were enslaved to sin. We were bound to sin. Therefore, we were bound to sin, right? And now we're freed from this bondage to sin. So we're no longer by necessity bound to sin. We can actually follow Christ. Listen, Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present, present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us, that is to pay the penalty, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do that which is good. That is to say, we need to understand about ourselves that not only has the penalty of sin been canceled, we've been forgiven, but the power of sin, the dominating power of sin, has been broken in our lives. Now, I know it doesn't always feel that way any more than we necessarily feel forgiven at any point in time. That's why we have to keep telling ourselves the truth. That's why we have to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Because if we don't, we'll forget it and not believe it. We need to keep it in front of us all the time. And part of what we keep in front of us is really, no matter how we feel, that the work of Christ, the ransom paid, set us free from not only the penalty, being enslaved to the place, but also breaking the power of sin. Romans 6, If we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because everyone who has died has been freed from sin. And then Peter goes on to bring this, at least at this point, to a close. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We've been freed. Now, Jesus says, I've come not to be served, but to serve. He serves us by way of seeing this need and setting us free and he serves us with his very life his very his very blood and that you see is completely reasonable and by that i mean this how could we ever think of serving christ it must be true that he serves us at least in this way of paying this ransom at least in this way of setting us free because what could we ever do for Jesus that he needs he's not the needy one we are and so he comes and this is astounding I, I've practiced these words all week because I'm not sure that they could even come from my lips in this way but it's true and I'll, I'll balance these in a minute but take them as, as hard or, or as blunt as they sound Christ lives to serve us. When he paid the ransom, yes, he was serving his father and he was glorifying his father and capturing back his father's honor, but he's also serving us because we're the needy ones. The Bible says he lives to intercede for us. He does that. What's he doing in that intercession? He's helping us. He's, he's empowering us. He's, he's guiding us. He lives to serve us. Now, there's a sense in which he doesn't serve us. 
Now, the sense in which he doesn't serve us is that he doesn't do our bidding. We're not his master. It isn't that he's the slave and we're the master. It's that he's the master who serves. We sang that a while ago. He's the servant king, which if you weren't paying attention, it's, those are just an odd juxtaposition of words, but true. He's the humble king. He's the servant king. So we aren't the master and he the slave. He's the king who serves. And he doesn't serve us in the sense that he does our bidding, even when we pray. When we pray, it isn't to get Jesus to do our bidding. When we pray, it's an admittance of our weakness and our need, and we're asking him to help us. That is, we're coming to him like a child, that is, in dependence upon him, and praying that he will help us because we need his help. And thus, in a sense, that's Jesus saying, I've come not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. Trust me, I will help you. That's why I'm here. I've come to help you. Now you say, doesn't the Bible say that we're servants of Christ? Yes. Paul says, I, Paul, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well then, how can he serve Christ if Christ is the one who serves him? And the answer is, he serves Christ through Christ. He serves Christ by Christ. It isn't so much that we first and foremost live for Christ, but first and foremost, we live from Christ. Does that make sense to you? We live from him. That we receive all that we are and all that we need from him. And then he calls us to serve him in the sense that we're to obey him. But how do you obey him? You obey him by hearing his voice, listening to his commands, and then saying, Oh, Lord Jesus, what? Help me. And he says, Thank you very much. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. I didn't come because I'm needy. I came because you are. I came to, to lead you in the right way. I came to enable you to follow me. I know it's funny. That's why he said this isn't anything like being a king in the kingdom of the Gentiles. It's unique to the kingdom of God, which is reality, which is the truth. All the rest is wrong. That's why it seems so weird. Because we grew up thinking kings got served, and now he's telling us, no, 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 no. Kings serve. He says, I'll serve you. And so everything that we do, that's why Jesus said to even his father, apart from you, I can do nothing. That's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He didn't say, I can do all things. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My favorite is in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 29, where Paul says this, To this end I labor, struggling, with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Let me read that again. He says, to this end, that is the work that God has called him to. He says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. He says, I live from Christ, that I might serve Christ. Now, who gets the glory when we serve Christ? Christ. Why? 
Well, because he's the one who redeemed us, served us by paying the price to set us free from the penalty of sin. He's the one who freed us from the power of sin. And he's the one who continues to help us and continue to empower us to follow him. So once we've served him, who gets the praise? He does. Why? Because he's the one who's responsible for all of it. And we worship him too. After we've served him, we say honestly, thank you. Why? Because it has been a blessing to follow him. Now please understand that this service of Christ comes at a cost. That when he calls us to follow him, there is a cup. There is a baptism. In fact, when Paul was speaking to the church in Colossae about his own work and his own suffering, which he was experiencing, he said, I'm, my sufferings fill up the afflictions of Christ. They fill up, they take up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now, when Paul said that, he didn't mean that there was anything lacking in the atoning work of Christ, anything lacking in the suffering of Christ on the cross for our salvation. But he said, when we're called to follow Christ, there's still suffering to come, and it's ours. As we set aside our own honor, or at least what we think is our honor, as we set aside our own convenience, as we set aside our own agenda, at times as we set aside our own lives to love others, to serve them. He says there's a cup. There's suffering. Jesus said if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's real. That means that there are times when we don't get to have the fun we may want it at fun or follow our own scheme, our own agenda, our own convenience. Because God calls us to love another. God calls us to take the gospel to another. We don't have the luxury of having every evening as ours. Every day as ours. Because when he ransomed us, he also bought us. So what's all this mean? Very quickly, first this. This is great news. Jesus come, came not to just give us a good example, but he came to, to set us free, to serve us, to empower us. He didn't come saying, now you need to make yourself better so you can serve me. He came and said, I'll free you and I'll make you holy that you might serve me. In fact, every time you read a command in Scripture whether it's a command to give, whether it's a command to love your husband or love your wife or love your parents or love your children or love your enemies. Every time you see a command in Scripture that says that you're to be patient, that you're to be kind, that you're to forgive, you need to see that as an invitation to you, as a definition to you as to how Jesus wants to serve you. Because when he calls us to these things, he's saying, now trust me. And I'll enable you to love your husband. Trust me, I'll enable you to love your wife. Trust me, I'll enable you to love your children. Trust me, I'll enable you to love your parents. Trust me, I'll enable you to be patient. Trust me, I'll enable you to be kind. Trust me, I'll enable you to forgive. In each case, he's saying, no, no, I'm not just telling you this and, I'll say, and saying, go, and once you've done it, come back. I'm saying, I'm with you. Trust me. I didn't come to be served. How audacious. 
to think that he needs anything. He says, I've come to serve. I've come to make you holy. James and John wanted honor in their own way. They wanted power in their own way. They wanted comfort in their own way. And Jesus said, do you want to be great? Do you want to really live life? Then come to me. Receive from me. I've paid the ransom. I will help you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness and grace. Lord Jesus, how could we not love you? How could we not trust you? How could it not be our heart's desire to follow the one who graciously, kindly, miraculously paid this ransom? So, Father, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help us. Lord Jesus, continue to intercede for us. Continue in this way to serve us. For we are the needy ones. May you serve us in such a way that we can then turn and serve each other, to love each other, and that we can in turn then do your bidding, obey you, and follow you. And this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do. I remind you that elders are available to pray, so please take advantage of that. I remind you also that of our time together Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock for dinner. I remind you, too, of the Mercy Seminar uh, beginning on Friday evening. If you're interested, please make sure you register uh, for that today. The response to the benediction is this phrase, I have been redeemed. Now, when you say that, what you're understanding yourself to say and mean is that Jesus has paid your ransom, that you were enslaved to sin, its penalty and its power and the meaninglessness that it gave your whole life, that you were enslaved, but now he has served you, redeemed you, paid your ransom, and you are free. And the only word that could come after that is hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I have been redeemed. Hallelujah.